Hola, so I want to jump right in. Uh, yesterday afternoon, as I recall, uh, our approach to settling the mind in its natural state, I said it was like walking around the block, remember? Where we, by a process of elimination, we brought this quality of awareness, with which I think you're quite familiar now, that stillness, the clarity, brought that to the visual domain, letting the light of that awareness be cast upon the visual domain and getting a clear take on that, and then the auditory, the tactile. We generally, in the, in the Buddha's discourse to Mahia, he overlooked the olfactory and gustatory, probably because there wasn't much there. Uh, so just, okay, never mind that. And then going to, to the sixth one, the sixth domain, and then, in the, and the Buddha said, in the cognized or in the mentally perceived, let it be just the mentally perceived. So this is a kind of a very, very empirical approach to highlighting the obvious fact, which is entirely overlooked in modern psychology, at least mainstream academic psychology, and that is that we are directly perceiving mental events, that contrary to the belief of John Searle and many others, we are able to spect intro, to observe inwardly, and observe, not just think, but observe thoughts. So we did that empirically, and now what I'd like to do, and I have to be very concise here, I'd like to cover a lot of territory uh, before we then we return to the practice. I'd like to now walk around the block, not empirically, as we did yesterday, but rather conceptually. And we'll start with a question. Because, as you can tell, I'm, I'm like a dog with a bone, I'm not letting, letting go, of this statement from the 100,000 verse Prajnaparamita, that a person with, with the chief of the fourth jhana can walk through walls and walk on water and fly and so forth and so on. And saying that, this is, the Travaks can do this, non-Buddhists can do this, and so forth, clearly stating there, as Karmachamit says, that you do not have to realize emptiness to have those abilities. There's no reference to that at all. It's just the fourth jhana, right? And so, how on earth could a person who is a metaphysical realist, because that's exactly what he's referring to, a person who is still grasping onto the inherent existence of the mind and phenomena and everything else, how could such a person, how, how is this even, but I like to propose this, how is it even plausible? Because it seems to be completely impossible uh, that, that that could be achieved. If it's true, as the materialists contend, that we are in fact living in a purely physical universe, and, and often when they say natural, give me a natural explanation, they mean a physical explanation, as if nature equals the physical. It's a very common belief. Not universal, but very, very common. If that's the case, and the mind is either an ineffective little fluffy epiphenomenon of matter, or simply a function of matter, or doesn't exist at all, we've heard all of those, are the, those are the three major options among materialists. If that's the case, then clearly this is this account from Kamachamet, going back to the Prajnapanamita Sutra, and going back to the Diga Nakaya of the Buddha's own teachings of the Nepali Canon, this is completely ridiculous. There's no possible way that can be true. Okay? So somebody's profoundly wrong. These cannot, you cannot be materialist and accept any of that. So something's profoundly wrong, correct? But of course, if you're materialist, something else should be totally magical and absolutely impossible. And that is taking a sugar tablet, believing it's going to bring about a specific change in your body, and not just feeling better or worse, 
but it's actually going to make your cancer go into remission. It's going to alleviate your symptoms of Parkinson's. It's going to bring about precisely what you will expect it to bring about. That's clearly impossible. So since it's impossible, and since it does occur, we better call it something that it's not. Placebo effect. Don't call it a mental effect, because the mind shouldn't have any effect, because mind either doesn't exist or it's just a function of matter. Therefore, let's just trick everybody, nobody will notice, and let's just call it a placebo effect, which of course it's not. So the placebo effect should be just as impossible as the cities cited in the Prajnapanamita Sutra. But the pharmaceutical industry spends hundreds of millions of dollars trying to exclude the placebo effect so they can sell drugs, because they can't sell the placebo effect. If they could, it would be a gold mine. So, I would suggest at this point, the materialistic view is looking rather dim, because it's not explaining, and has absolutely no explanation for the placebo effect at all. But keeping close to the bone here, how is it possible if one is, okay, you can't be a materialist, if you're a materialist, you're a flat minder, okay? A flat earther, they believe that the earth, you know, the water would drip off the edge. You're a flat minder. You've flattened, you've, you've taken the steamroller of materialism, materialistic dogma, and you've flattened the mind into oblivion. And if you're a flat minder, placebo effect should be impossible. And of course, all these cities cited in perfection of wisdom, if you're a flat minder, okay? Well, you can be a metaphysical realist and not be a flat minder. The Shravakas are. many Hindus are, and so forth and so on. So how is that possible? So let's say you've come to your senses. You know, you've come out of this kind of like datura-riddled hallucination of thinking everything is just objective. There's nothing, nothing subjective, there's nothing material. So now let's keep on moving. How is it possible? How is it possible? If you do believe that the mind is real and has causal efficacy, in other words, your, no, your notion of nature includes natural mind and natural matter. How is it possible now? How, can, how is it plausible to think of those cities actually occurring? And for that, we can go to some of the most brilliant thinkers in the West as a teaser. I'm going to cite Carl Jung, I think, well, together with Freud, the most famous psychologist of the 20th century. A brilliant man, clearly, and he engaged in a correspondence that went on, I think, perhaps 20 years with one of the most brilliant pioneers of quantum mechanics and a Nobel laureate in physics named Wolfgang Pauli. They had a correspondence. The two of them brainstormed together. Wouldn't you like to be in, in part of that correspondence? And they came up with a theme because they were grappling with this issue. Now, in the 20th century, so quantum mechanics had happened, and... And Carl Jung, of course, a very innovative thinker, very intuitive thinker. And they're looking at the mind-body relationship. The mind is non-physical, right? How does a non-physical mind engage with matter? Like cells, how is that possible? It's the ghost in the machine. How do they actually, how are they not ships missing each other in the night, passing in the night? How do they interact with each other? And so they posited something, and here's what they posited. And I've written about this at length in number of my books, but one of them in particular is Hidden Dimensions. So Wolfgang Pauli and Carl Jung proposed mental and material phenomena originate from an integral domain prior to the distinction of mind and matter. The unus mundus, this is the term they gave, the unus mundus, a unitary domain of archetypes that manifest as configurations of mental and physical phenomena. 
The existence of this archetypal realm was essential to explain the causal connections that exist between the psyche and the body that would then provide you a basis for, uh, for understanding the placebo effect, faith healing, which has occurred throughout history, and so forth, but then just generally intentions and you know how our minds interact and influence our body and the body influences the mind. So they came with this notion of an underlying realm that's purely archetypal. And then what we are experiencing here is kind of like a holographic display or an illusory display of these archetypes and, the, and or these displays of mind and matter, two very dis, different domains of, of reality, can causally interact because they stem from the same unitary source, this domain. So this was their view. They worked on it for a couple, about 20 years. Worked out quite, quite well. And I've given, in the notes here, I've given the sources where you can check it out for yourself if you're interested. Wolfgang Pauli, this brilliant, brilliant quantum physicist, was so afraid of his community of physicists that he refused to let their correspondence be published until after he was dead. That was exactly what Copernicus did for the same reason. Copernicus feared excommunication, and so did Wolfgang Pauli, from the church and from the Church of Scientific Materialism, where you shouldn't, just shouldn't think such thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it's literally true, right? But this was, in a way, it was very novel, it was brilliant, but it's not without precedent. If we go back to Pythagoras, who was a contemporary of the Buddha, he claimed, according to the records we have, that he could remember 20 of his past lives. He manifested, manifested himself in two different places at one time. He performed other kind of cities, according to the ancient, ancient documents we have. And he started a community here in Italy. He was from, from Greece, of course, but he started a community here in Italy that was, I think they would call it a contemplative observatory. <laughs> Because it wasn't just a place to think. He gave them real rigorous training for a sustained period. you know. And he traveled at least as far east as Egypt, where there were Hindus at the time. And I think the chances are very good. I think it's a very plausible hypothesis that he learned samadhi from Hindus. Probably not from Buddhists, because the Buddha was way over east. He didn't get that far. But it looks like he mastered samadhi. And then out of his... I'm going to speculate a little bit. This is not wild-ass kind of speculation, he achieved very profound samadhi. I think he probably learned it from Indians, because they were the masters of it, after all, not the Egyptians. And out of that, he experientially probed into a domain of reality, another dimension of reality, that um, was pure form, that was purely mathematical. And that was his, that was his, his theme, that the, this pure form realm is made of a geometrical archetypal forms, and out of that manifests this world. Well, the guru lineage goes from Pythagoras to Socrates to Plato, and Plato's realm of pure ideas is a derivative of that, that the underlying reality is one of pure ideas. And what we are seeing is the course manifestation, the pop-up, the illusory display of an underlying reality. This is not just ancient history. There are a number of very, very first-rate mathematicians today. I won't elaborate a lot uh, but who believe there is an underlying reality that is purely mathematical in nature. And that what we are experiencing here with this natural world, with its physical laws that are so precisely mathematical, they are precisely mathematical because they are epiphenomena. They are emergent effulgences, displays, holographic images uh, of an underlying reality that's purely mathematical in nature, pure form. Okay? So this has a long lineage to it. Uh, but the problem 
for Jung and Pauli was, I think they came up with a brilliant theory. I've, I've studied it very closely. I've spoken at some length with the world expert, Harald Ottmannswache, a German physicist, and I've cited him here so you can check it out. Uh, but they had no way of testing it. It's a brilliant theory, but no way of testing it. So it's just kind of been shelved, it's gone into the archives, right? But if you've been following closely and you have, Buddhist, you have some Buddha background in Buddhism, the Buddhists do have, going back to the time of the Buddha himself and going right through the, you know, the whole history of Theravada Buddhism and so on, there is this theory rooted in much earlier than the Buddha himself of there being a form realm, the Rubadhatu, and beyond that the Arupyadhatu, the formless realm. And all of these had been explored thoroughly by Hindu yogis prior to the Buddha. And the Buddha explored all of these with those two samadhi masters that he, he met up with very shortly after leaving home. And then he explored them again uh, later on. So this is simply how the world is. Phenomenologically, we have the desire realm, which we call the physical universe, that is permeated by mind, or at least where mind is operative. And, but this is a pop-up, a display of, emerges from the form realm, and the form realm emerges most subtly from the formless realm. And this can all be empirically explored and has been, and you do it with samadhi. Shamatha crosses over the portal into the form realm, and then you can fully achieve first, second, third, fourth jhana, explore different dimensions of this. And so, so citing Buddhist methods for contemplative exploring the form realm. How do you do this? Once you've settled your mind in its natural state, you may initially gain experiential access to this realm of pure forms, by focusing on the earth element, or you may start with any of the other elements of water, fire, air, or space. If you'd like to check this out, then there's a detailed explanation of this. It's technology. It's very rigorous, very demanding, of mastering what are called the nimittas, the nimittas of earth, water, fire, air, the four, these, four, these four basic elements. The archetypal, and they are called the archetypal quintessences of the elements that we experience, solidity, moisture, heat, and motility, but these are all emerging from these archetypes in the form realm. You can access this with samadhi by, by a range of practices that the Buddha himself taught. They're called the ten kasinas. And a kasina is zepar in Tibetan. Zepar kasina samadhi. Zepar kitingenzin. Sai zepar kitingenzin. The samadhi focusing on the zeppa, and a zeppa is an, a universal emblem of earth, water, fire, air. So I'm, I'm not going to go into it in detail now. I've written about this in Hidden Dimensions. Uh, but suffice it to say, this is laid out in great detail, and I'm going to do it extremely concisely. Once you've achieved a shamatha, you've accessed the form realm, then you may identify these archetypes of earth, water, fire, air, also four colors, and also space and light. And for each of these, you can find the archetype in the form realm, right? And then, as Buddhaghosa describes in great detail, he tells you basically a, the gymnastic mental training, the Olympic training, to master completely. I mean, it's like gymnastics. I looked at when this 25, 30, no, 35 years ago. I said, gosh, I think you'd want to be very young to do this. Uh, because it is becoming utterly adroit at ma- going from, from the earth element in the second jhana to the water element in the fourth jhana to this element the, and just going back and back. It's like working out in mental gym and mastering all of these jhanas. And then once you've mastered all of them, then you go into samadhi and you take, for example, you go into samadhi and you 
you latch onto and you master, you kind of like pull into the magnetic force of your mind, the earth, the earth nimitta, the earth archetype in the form realm. You hold that and then you bring your awareness back to the desire realm. And by the power of your samadhi, you superimpose. It's like, like casting this archetype of earth element in on a body of water, for example. And then you walk in the water. You cast the space, the archetype of space element, on a mountain, and you walk through the mountain. You cast the fire element on your own body, and it bursts into flame. And so forth. And so I'm calling this a special theory of ontological relativity. For a reason, it's not just cute. Special relativity is a limited view, a vision of relativity because it has to do with only, uh, how do you say, constant speed and a straight line. And that was enough. That was amazing. And the mathematics, mathematics is very simple. It's algebra. But it blows the mind to see the implications of that. So this is a special theory of ontological relativity, that everything we see here that seems to be absolutely as it is existing from its own side, in fact, is a projection. Everything we're seeing in the physical world exists only relative to form realm. If you master the archetypes in the form realm purely by the power of samadhi, with no insight into emptiness at all, you learn how to master them, then you can superimpose those. You can walk on water, walk through walls, fly through the air. You can just basically, with the sheer muscle power of samadhi, impose the archetypes of these four elements, including space, on this world, and then perform what looks like magic. But it's not magic at all. It's relativistic psychology. Because what's been assumed in, in the modern West since Galileo is that the mind is inert. The mind has no power. That it just, we just watch, you know, like the mind is just flat. And so if that's your case, then the world seems to be totally physical. And if you have any psychological problem, just go to the American Medical Association or the pharmaceutical industry. If you have any psychological problem at all, you know what to do about it. Go for a drug. Because your mind is just hanging out there, kind of the slave of the brain. And if you have any psychological problem, it's a brain disorder, so just go to the brain. And that is the working hypothesis of the pharmaceutical industry and a lot of the modern medical system. Business, I should say, because it's big business today. Uh, but it has a, a flat-minder view of the mind. I mean, it's pathetically superficial and misleading. So according to traditional Buddhist sources, each of the above methods of mastering each of these kasinas, each of these nimittas of the elements, each of these methods provides experiential access to emblematic representations or archetypes of the whole quality. That's the term kasina. That is, you've captured the archetype for the whole of solidity throughout the entire universe. The whole of fluidity, the whole of heat, the whole of motility, the whole of space. And by drawing there, then you can overpower. And then as soon as your samadhi is over, then the reality snaps back. So as soon as you've withdrawn the earth archetype from the body of water, then it snaps back and, then you'd, and everybody would fall into it. It seems too, by if we take a biblical account, that you can invite other people into this as well. <laughs> like you can walk on the water and then invite a friend of yours, like Thomas or whatever, or Peter, whoever, you know, your buddies, and say, come on, walk on the water with me. You know. So... 
These are the nimittas, these are the signs of the earth element. And that's how, even if you have no insight into emptiness at all, with an enormous amount of work, it's really, really hard work, uh, of mastering these casinas, then you could show these cities, which is just high-tech, but kind of like, relatively speaking, low-tech, because there's no insight to emptiness at all. You're still reifying everything and still able to do cities. So when I was with Ananda Maitreya in, in Sri Lanka, 35 years ago, uh, I asked him, how many people nowadays do you think of in, in Sri Lanka have actually achieved jhana? Because nowadays people talk about it like, oh, do it in a weekend, do it in a month. <laughs> he wasn't fooled by that. He actually, you know, he was a great sage. And he said, oh, you can, count them on the hand of, you can count them on the fingers of one hand. But he did cite one, one center. It was between Colombo and Kandy. He said, there are some people there that are doing this casino practice. 35 years ago. Don't know if it's still true. Okay, but it was rare. Hola, so. so. But I said we'd be walking around the block. Okay? So we just walked around the block to the, instead of going to the, the visual, the auditory, we walked around the block to the mental, the kind of the earth, water, fire, air. Those four elements. White, red, yellow, blue. The uh, archetypes for the four primary colors. And then there's also space and light. And there are archetypes for each of these. Now we just walked around the block. But now time, since time is so short and life is so short, we can ask another question. If, if earth, water, fire, and each of these has its archetypal form, its sign, its sign from which it emerges, right? That's the, exactly the idea. The archetype from which it emerges, just as Carl Jung and Wolfgang Pauli suggested. Well, what about the mind? And here again from the Pali Canon, Buddha states, in this manner, monks, the wise, experienced, skillful monk, abides in happiness here and now, and is mindful and introspective as well. What is the reason for that? Because monks, the wise, experienced, skillful monk, acquires the sign of his own mind. So what is the sign of the mind? And I would suggest that the sign of the mind is that out of which your, your mind emerges in this world as a human being in the desire realm. What is it from which your mind emerges in the formation of you as a, as a fetus in your mother's womb? What is it from which your mind emerges and manifests in this coarse level, in a coarse world, the desire realm? Substrate consciousness. consciousness. I don't think it can be anything else. The substrate consciousness is the sign of the mind. And there you dwell in happiness because when you're dwelling in it, it's blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual. Now, how significant is that? Well, the Buddha states the first line in Dhammapada, all phenomena are preceded by the mind. Phenomena means all experiences. Everything you experience is preceded by the mind. Well, everything you've ever experienced in this lifetime was preceded by substrate consciousness. Your continuum of subsequent time. Issue forth from the mind. You've heard that one before, haven't you? All these appearances are illuminated by, issue forth from, the substrate consciousness. And they consist of the mind. All these appearances are none other than the displays of your substrate consciousness on this relative level. Considering those cities, though, a final quote, and then we'll get to the practice. The Ratna Mega Sutra, which is the Mahayana Sutra, 
Here the Buddha states, all phenomena are preceded by the mind. But then he continues, when the mind is comprehended, all phenomena are comprehended. Everything is comprehended. Comprehend the mind, everything is comprehended. By bringing the mind under control, all things are brought under control. That sounds like a very direct way to develop cities. And so this, you recall, for those of you who were either attending to or listened to the podcast of A Spacious spacious Path to Freedom, remember the end of the Pashana section, where Kama Chamed is saying there are two approaches to realizing emptiness. Remember? Remember the the tree and you you want firewood? You can either cut off all the branches until the tree drives up and then cut it down, or you can tap the taproot, cut the taproot, the whole tree dries up, and then you have, and it's much easier, more direct, go for the taproot. He said in a similar way, if you want to realize the, phenom- the emptiness of all phenomena, you can go one by one. You can look at atoms and particles and fields and time and space and plants and animals and so forth and so on, or you can just go to the taproot, realize the empty nature of the mind, and out of that, the empty nature of all phenomena can easily be comprehended. Realize the mind, you've gone to the essence. Realize the emptiness of the mind, you've gone to the essence of all phenomena. So Dzogchen, we're, I'm, just, I'm, I'm 66 now, my goodness. Yesterday, you people celebrated my getting a year older. <laughs> Why did you do that? If I were going younger, that would be really like 64, yay, that, I would join in that celebration. But you're all getting happy because I'm older. <laughs> this means that time's really running out. And that is this direct route. Just don't get distracted. So it's good conceptually to learn about the clunky, old-fashioned, classical way of going through all those casinos and say, Paul, that is plausible. If you're not a flat minder. But if you're a flat minder, I don't know, you're an idiot. I'm sorry, but really, come on, wake up. At least the placebo effect. But then, and don't call it placebo effect. Harumph, harumph, you know. <laughs> but let's not be distracted, because life is really short, getting shorter all the time. So don't get distracted. Just stay focused, right on the mind, right on through, like a hot knife through butter. Let's settle the mind in its natural state so that your mind collapses back into its sign. Realize its sign, and then don't get distracted. Realize the ultimate nature of the substrate consciousness. Don't get distracted. Cut through to pristine awareness. Don't get distracted. Become a Buddha in this lifetime. Let's practice.
this chapter on shamatha that we are very slowly exploring. You recall there's a chapter from the text, which is a commentary to the root text called Buddhahood in the Palm of the Hand. Following this path of Dzogchen, it really seems like Buddhahood, perfect awakening, is within reach. If we keep very straight, very focused, and always focus on the essential, one thing before everything else, wake up. For the sake of all sentient beings, wake up with this motivation, that subtle body, speech, and mind, and the natural state. Count just ten breaths, one succinct count at the end of each inhalation. And between counts, let your mind be as silent and continuously attentive as possible. Let your eyes be at least partially open, gently, softly open, all the muscles around the eyes soft and relaxed. Your gaze vacant without focusing visually on anything 
Let your awareness continue to rest right where it is. Familiarize yourself with this mode of awareness, simply at rest, but clear and discerning, still and bright, hovering without grasping in the present moment, without drifting off into memories of the past or anticipation of the future. Silently knowing And then for those of you who are new to this practice, and for whom the space of the mind is an elusive concept, you may not be quite sure what to look at, or where it is, or how big it is. Forty years ago, Geshe Rapton suggested a technique which is friendly, user-friendly, an entrance into the practice. And that is simply generate a thought. Any thought will do. The one he suggested, I suggest. The thought, this is the mind. Generate this thought slowly, syllable by syllable. As you do so, focus your attention on the thought arising. This is the mind. And when the thought comes to an end, keep your attention right where it was, because that thought was occurring in the space of the mind. Wherever mental events occur, that's where the space of the mind is. So generate the thought again when you come to the end. Keep your attention focused right where that thought disappeared. Relaxed, breathing effortlessly. But keep your attention focused right there. You've dropped your anchor in the space of your mind and observe the next thought that arises by itself.
as soon as your attention becomes diffuse, vague, spaced out, you may generate a thought again. You can crystallize your attention with any kind of discursive thought. But when the next thought arises, spontaneously, sustain the stillness of your awareness. Gently, softly, observe whatever comes to mind. And simply observe the nature of that phenomenon without going into the story, the drama, the referent of the thoughts. Just observe what arises here and now in the space of the mind and let it be without seeking to modify it in any way. Alternatively, you can generate a mental image. Image of a piece of fruit, your home, anything at all that doesn't arouse craving or aversion. Generate the mental image. Focus on it. Let it fade out. And keep your attention fixed right there in that domain ready to observe the next thought or image that arises of its own accord, all the while, to the best of your ability, sustain the ongoing flow, the stillness of your awareness.
clearly there's flexibility here. You may on occasion, while sustaining the stillness of your awareness, take a keen interest in the space of the mind, examining its nature. Take a keen interest in the various types of phenomena that arise within this space, observing how they arise, how they are present, how they vanish. So at times the primary focus of your attention may be really on the mind itself, observing it as over the course of time of intensive sustained practice, you see it fade away, subside, all these appearances vanishing into the substrate and all these subjective impulses vanishing into the substrate consciousness. You may find it very interesting and focus on it intensely. But you may on other occasions sit back a bit and rest primarily in this sheer knowing this unmediated experience of being conscious and that let only your peripheral awareness illuminate the space of the mind and whatever's going on in that domain while you remain seated on your throne, awareness resting in its own place. There's a spectrum there, a continuum. It's your choice. how far out you wish to extend your awareness to the space of the mind and its contents, or how much you want to simply stay at home. You can experiment. Do so, and let's continue practicing in silence.
Pona. So, so for our post-meditative practice to maintain this continuity, certainly a central theme would be to maintain the continuity of this stillness of awareness uh, as much as possible. Doing what, while doing whatever you need to do, washing, brushing your teeth, and so forth and so on, but maintaining in the midst of all of that. That stillness to avoid the cognitive fusion of looking upon anything in the environment, including the environment of uh, the, our own bodies as the environment of the mind, uh, as I and mine, just resting in that stillness, there is no projection of I and mine. But also just to be aware of appearances arising. That is, when we're doing this practice and we're attending to the space of the mind, we're seeing simply appearances arising and they have no substance. They're, not, they're just like rainbows. They're just, they're just appearances, like in a dream. We are, in fact, of course, seeking to become lucid with respect to our mind in the waking state. That's the nature of this practice. But not just on the cushion. Because right now, as we're attending to all these visual appearances, auditory and so forth and so on, all these appearances are stemming from the same source. right? Whether it's dream appearances of colors, shapes, sounds, and so forth, they're, they're, where are they? Where are they lo- located? Where are they coming from? What are they dissolving into? The substrate which is perfectly obvious when you're lucid in a dream and then you let it fade away. You just see it. You see all those appearances, they were there, and then you just see them fade right into the substrate and that's all that left. As you see your dream, your dreaming mind, that is the, the mind of the dreamed persona, it could be another gender, it could be older or younger than you in this, you know, in the waking state, and you can see how you, the mind of the dreamed persona dissolves into the substrate consciousness. You can see it. And then when you come, if you're lucid from in a dreamless sleep, dreamless sleep, and you come emerging into a dream lucidly, then you can see how your mind of the dreamed persona, the person in the dream, is emerging from the substrate consciousness, and you can see how all the appearances in the dream are emerging from the substrate. You can see it. It's empirical. Total observation. But in an analogous way, not identical, but analogous way, all these appearances here, all these appearances arising from the substrate. All of them. All the five sensory, the mental, they're all arising from the substrate. When we fall deep asleep tonight, they're going to all dissolve back into the substrate. So this is the waking dream. And nighttime, we have the nighttime dreams. And to maintain, insofar as you can fill this with understanding, with insight, not just belief, and not just slogans, or like, you know, whatever. But to maintain this awareness, this way of viewing reality, that all these appearances that I'm experiencing... They're not out there at all. Out there as in some place in physical space. They appear to be. But they're not. That's an illusion. It's misleading. And all of these appearances right now, all appearing in the space of my own mind. Space of awareness. Sustain that. Then you'll know that whoever you encounter, like people, for example, you're never encountering someone separate from yourself. And it's, it's not to say that you know, if I die, other people survive. Of course, separate. If other people die, I can survive. Of course, separate. We know that. But in terms of my perception of you, visual perception, I hear you speak, auditory perception, but also, very importantly, my mental sense of what kind of a person you are. Anybody, a stranger on the street, people I've known for 40 years. How you're appearing to me, sensorially as well as mentally, I'm never getting you as an independent entity. I never leap the fence. 
outside the bubble of my mind. It's always yumi, 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 himi, shimi, yumi, we, we, me. <laughs> but no matter what, it, me is always part of the equation. As long as we're operating out of coarse mind. I'm only, always getting the Alan Wallace version. And that's not you, because you're not the Alice Wallace version. You better not be. Right? But I'm always getting the Alan Wallace version. But that Alice Wa- Alan Wallace version, you seen through my prism, has no existence independently of my prism. You do. I die. You're still there. But you, me, doesn't. You die when I die. The you, me, dies when I die. Right? So if we ever get upset at anybody, you might want to just check who are you really upset at? The you or the me? Because <laughs> I find the people out there that I, I have the most difficulty with, you know, the strongest resistance and whatever, those are the people who appear to me to embody my own qualities that I most dislike. I can't stand those people. <laughs> Enjoy your day.